Well, hi, Deconstructionist listeners. This is Science Mike, and before you get started with your beloved podcast, I've got a quick bit of exciting news to share with you. I'm going on tour this fall to support my new book, Finding God in the Waves, with a series of special events, including Ask Science Mike live appearances. The dates announced so far are going to be in Tallahassee, Denver, Nashville, Columbus, Atlanta, Chicago, and Grand Haven, as well as Portland. Now, if you're going to come to any of those, I'd love to see you, but pay special attention to the Columbus, Ohio event, because I heard that the Deconstructionist crew themselves are going to be there. So I'd love to hang out with you and the hosts of one of my favorite podcasts at the same time. You can learn more by going to findinggodinthewaves.com slash tour. Thanks, and I hope to see you soon. The Deconstructionist Podcast is produced by Nicholas Rowe at the National Audio Preservation Society Recording Studio in Newark, Ohio. Follow us on social media at www.thedeconstructionist.com, on Facebook at Deconstructionist Podcast, Twitter at Deconstructcast, and Instagram at Deconstructionist Podcast. If listening to this podcast has benefited you in any way, consider making a donation. Even the smallest donations go to help John and I maintain healthy relationships with our wives and keeps their blood pressure at a healthy level. The donate link is in the show notes, or you can visit our website and click the donate tab. How cool. Welcome, everybody, to the Deconstructionist Podcast. We've got yet another. <laughs> this Nug- one was fun, man. I mean, Dude, they're all fun, but... You were... I wish this would have been video. I was <laughs> I was, I was, a little bit nerd heaven. It was fantastic. Right there. I was like, oh, I get to talk about all the nerdy stuff that I, you know, that I... My nerd <laughs> hobby, you know, and get it all out of my system. It was it was a lot of fun, and I think... Um, Tell us cool, about your crush here, man. The, my, I'll, well, first I'll say who. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> um, this this individual that we had on is uh, Deborah, Dr. Deborah Harsma. Um, she is the president of BioLogos. Um, she's held this position for a few years now. She was uh, previously a professor and chair in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at Calvin College, and uh, um, she, she was she's an astrophysicist, right? Yeah, and her job was to study uh, how did she put it exoplanets. Exoplanets and formation of galaxy formation clusters, of galaxy clusters, but like right. not the ones you can see. So, <laughs> oh. so not the ones in our in our galaxy, but in distant galaxies that they have to use crazy telescopes for. And and we definitely talked about that. Oh, quite, for sure, quite a bit. In this. <laughs> so she's, but she's got a really interesting 
Well, I mean, BioLogos in general, do you want to talk a little bit about what that is? BioLogos is, um, everybody should check this out. Go to www.biologos.com. If you're spiritually curious and science-minded, it is going to be nerd heaven for you. There mm -hmm. are lectures, resources, materials. It is essentially a theological, scientific think tank that was started by Francis Collins a while back. Francis Collins is the world-renowned scientist that led the team that mapped the human genome. And he is just a complete badass. Yeah. And yeah. he started BioLogos because, you know, this idea that science and spirituality are competitive um, really is just a pop culture um, disinformation that's gotten out there. It's just a, one of those nasty rumors. It's like a tabloid rumor about this nasty love affair, you know, between science and spirituality. And so yeah. Bi BioLogos really seeks to, um, unlike some organizations out there that will remain nameless. <laughs> right. they, 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 they try to have the utmost integrity in both science and faith, and they allow the two to form each other. They don't, they don't start with any rigid premises that you know, really make science hard to do or make faith hard to do. I, I mean, I, I think they're fantastic. Yeah, I mean, uh, all of them are really, really highly respected in their uh, specific fields. And uh, um, Dr. Harsma's got some really cool work out there that you can check out too. So obviously, check the show notes. We'll have um, all of her social media and her website, the, the, the link to, to BioLogos. Um, you can follow them on Twitter and, all, and uh, Facebook and all that good stuff. Uh, but she's also uh, written a couple books. Uh, most recently, um, Origin, Christian Perspectives on Creation, Evolution, and Intelligent Design. So obviously, that's a hot topic um, out there. So it's very interesting from a, a Christian science perspective here mm. not to be confused with the place that i always thought was a bookstore <laughs> <laughs> the christian science reading room yeah i was like oh so it's like a christian library that you can I go to about so hard because I, I thought the same thing <laughs> no for years I was like cool well because they don't look like churches either they look like what a library would look like so it's not I was my walking fault. downtown cincinnati <laughs> i think i was like 18 years old and i was like this place looks really cool. And then yeah. I like brought it up to my parents and they're like, no, 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 no. Please no, do no. not go in there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, she's got some really cool stuff out there. She also participated and contributed to uh, the Faraday Institute's film uh, Test of Faith, which is a really cool documentary. Mm. Um, just a ton of really well-respected scientists um, and, and talking about, again, how science and, and faith do not contradict one another and, and do go hand in hand. So right, check right, that right. out. Oh man, this is fantastic. We, we get into a lot of really juicy, nerdy um, conversation here about all kinds of things. And the reason that we wanted to have uh, Dr. Harsma on the Deconstructionist podcast is because we are super curious. And I think everybody is in some way, shape or form. I mean, we live in a scientific culture. Scientific discoveries all the time are changing the way we live our lives, changing the way we share a common life, changing the way we relate to ideas of faith and politics and ethics. And these things are all entangled ideas. And it always seems to be a big, you know, problem for people that are, it's just like this awkward kind of intersection of ideas that people are always like, they don't know how to talk about. And we need to confront our biases. We need to hear different perspectives. And we're going to have, we've got more scientists lined up for the yeah. future. And we are going to continue to just listen to different competing, um, grace-filled, open perspectives. And uh, Dr. Harsma was absolutely fantastic. And 
I can't wait to roll tape on this. Dude, we, we, she seems to fit this theme that we have that we didn't even expect, which is uh, people in their respective fields just having really awesome personalities. Mm. I mean, she was so... I could have listened to her talk all day. All day. And, and not just because, you know, she... She told me about black holes and <laughs> galaxy we formations. Did. We talked about some stuff, man. Yeah, so if and you then like the spiritual science. intersections. I love people that can talk Beautiful. about both. It is awesome. Yeah. It's so great. So without further ado, yeah. here we go. We got Dr. Deborah Freakin' Harzma. Deb Harsma, thank you so much for being with us here today on the Deconstructionist Podcast. We are just delighted to have you. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So one of the ways we like to kind of get started is instead of um, rambling ourselves about uh, all the stuff we've read about you on blogs and interviews and things like that, we just love to give our interviewees a chance to just kind of tell people who they are and how did you, who are you, what kind of work do you do? And how did you start to, to come to the place where you're doing? The kind of, what's your story? How did you get to where you are doing the work you're doing now? Oh, well, let's see. I, um, by training, I am an astronomer. So I'm a scientist. I study galaxies in the universe. And uh, for many years, I taught astronomy and physics at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. But a few uh-huh. years ago, I um, became president of BioLogos which is a science and faith organization. Our mission is to invite the church and the world to see the harmony between modern science and biblical faith. And I've always had a passion for the intersection of uh, science and Christianity, how those things fit together, synergize in positive ways, um, figuring out what's going on in the areas of uh, where there seems to be conflict and tension. And I just love sharing that with uh, the church and with scientists, with anybody to share the wonders of the universe and what they show us about God. Oh man! So how how did you um, how did how did this interse- this interest between the intersection of science and faith how did that kind of grow and develop in you? Give if you if you don't mind, give us a little bit of your kind of personal background into how that became a passion of yours. Yeah. Well, let's see. I always loved math and science. So my dad would play math games with my brother and me when we were little. And uh, let's see in High school, I think, is when I first really started wondering how these would fit together. So I grew up in a Christian home and in an evangelical church, and so the only view I knew of about uh, Genesis was that it was the young earth interpretation, that the earth and the universe really literally began six to 10,000 years ago. And I thought the Big Bang and evolution were just bad words, uh, just equivalent of atheism. But then I had high school biology class at my public high school, and here in the textbook, it was describing evolution. So I knew evolution was wrong, but some of this kind of made sense, so I was confused. And I brought it home, <laughs> and I, I brought it home to my dad, and I, I, you know, I kind of explained to him, you know, here's what the textbook's saying, what's going on, and uh, here we are sitting at the kitchen table, textbook open in front of us, and going back and forth. And after a while, I, I still remember this, he kind of just sat back and said, I don't know. And I... Whoa, wow. Yeah. And I remember this feeling of relief in my shoulders, just like, oh, it's okay to not know. I thought we had to have uh, an answer for this, you know? 
Yeah. So, so I think I was like a lot of teenagers are, and I mean, just a, a lot of Christians are just like, well, what's the right answer? Tell me the right answer. And here was um, my my dad, who I respected as my father and as a Christian, and he was clearly not uh, floored by this. His faith wasn't thrown into a total tailspin. It was he felt okay saying, "I don't know," and that just really helped me. Then for for many years after that, I just kind of put the whole issue on the back burner and just focused on you know learning more physics. I ended up going into the physics area of uh, science and and growing in my faith in other ways. So that was a, a key moment for me. Another uh, moment was in college. I went to a Christian college, Bethel in Minnesota, and there was a chapel speaker, and I had forgotten his name, but um, he was talking about what it means to be a Christian in different fields, and God's calling for some to be people to be Christians in academia, at universities, doing science or studying other things. And up till that point, I'd never heard this really compelling picture of how science could be a Christian vocation, how I could be a Christian witness as a scientist, how I could do it from a Christian perspective. And it was just eye-opening for me. I'm like, okay, that's what God is calling me to do. And so I went off to graduate school and studied science there. And at that point, I um, got to meet, I connected with a lot of people from InterVarsity Graduate Christian Fellowship. Um, That was active there. I was a graduate student at MIT and there was also an active group at Harvard, which is just down the road. And these groups would get together, and several of us were interested in these questions. And so that gave me a wonderful community to be a part of as we would read books and um, discuss them over lunch. And um, I'm still friends with several of those folks from that era. And um, that helped me work through a lot of issues. And it was then that I came to understand better how Genesis could be understood in its ancient context. Uh, what the cultures were like at that time, and I came to really have a, a deeper understanding of God's intentions in Genesis, what He was communicating to us, and that just helped uh, so much. And once I learned some of those things, I just developed a great passion to share this with the church. I wanted to share the science with the church. I wanted to share what I'd learned about the Bible. How come nobody had told me this before? And um, <laughs> that that sense of calling has uh, driven a lot of my work since then. Mm, wow, man. Um, we definitely want to want to want to hit on on some of what you just said just now, especially when it comes to young Earth theory and and Big Bang theory and 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 how a lot of us were raised kind of in that uh, under that same um, idea that that these things cannot uh, you know uh, work alongside of Scripture and the Bible and and that sort of thing. Before we move on, though, um, for the layperson out there listening, um, you, you mentioned you study your field is astronomy, and so. For a lot of us, that's kind of murky. We just assume, oh, she, you know, does she look at through a telescope and, and stare at stars all day? What, uh, what specifically are you working on currently? What, what is it that you're uh, that you're studying? Well, um, so I, I, I'm not currently doing a lot of research, but my, my area has been and is uh, galaxies and the universe. So uh, when wow. you look, yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's, <laughs> it's been really fun to study um, some of the biggest things in God's creation. So when you look up at the night sky, the stars that you see are mostly relatively close to Earth. They're in our local part of the galaxy. And when you see the band of the Milky Way, you're seeing um, the band of stars that is our galaxy, um, a couple hundred billion stars in the Milky Way. But oh. in my research, that stuff was all just nearby. 
Um, what I was interested in was much further beyond, entirely separate galaxies, each containing hundreds of billions of stars. And those galaxies don't uh, hang out just individually. They tend to appear in groups and clusters. And so I studied some of the largest clusters of galaxies in the universe, um, which would have thousands of galaxies in them. Those would be the largest gravitationally bound objects. Um, and also in the earlier stage of my career, I studied uh, the expansion rate of the universe. Um, I studied how light bends in gravitational fields. So uh, a lot of uh, cool topics I've had a chance to delve into. Oh, that's like way beyond cool. And we will, we will definitely, we definitely have some questions for you. We'll do, maybe we'll do our second ever lightning round at the end if you're, if you're ready for that. But quick question <laughs> that you probably can't really even answer in a short time on a podcast. But when you say you're, you're studying, you know, galaxies beyond stars, which are already so far away, like what instruments do you, like what, how do you yeah. see that? Like what, I'm like, what? Sounds like science fiction. To yeah. I'm like a philosophy theology nerd. I don't know a lot about science, so I'm just like, how do you? Eat, what the? How? <laughs> well, there are yes, there are ways to encounter this stuff. So you might have seen pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope. So that's an orbit around the Earth, and it is uh, very sensitive and it's able to see things very far away in the same wavelengths that our eyes see. So. Um, some of the galaxies that I studied have been uh, photographed by the Hubble Space Telescope. And th that can see to galaxies that, um, oh, 13 billion light years away and more. So just to rewind for a second, a light year is a distance. It's the, um, the distance that light can travel in a year, traveling at the speed of light. So... Um, in our solar system, uh, light travels, you know, it's uh, several minutes from the sun to the earth. But to other galaxies, it's, well, to those nearby stars I talked about in our galaxy, um, those would be uh, 25, 100, maybe 1,000 light years away. But these distant galaxies that I studied would be um, millions or a billion light years away. Wow. Now you, you wow. Asked, yeah, you asked what instruments. I actually mostly studied these at wavelengths beyond what our eyes can see. And this isn't fiction. This is real science. So um, light comes in uh, different wavelengths, different colors in the visible part of the spectrum, but light can also come in uh, infrared versions and ultraviolet. And you can extend beyond that to radio waves, x-rays. Those are all just light, but at different wavelengths and different um, energy levels. So I studied using radio telescopes and X-ray telescopes and infrared telescopes, and all of those give different insights into how these galaxies look. I was always amazed at how different a galaxy would look at radio wavelengths than at visible wavelengths. So here it is emitting radio waves, um, just uh, these very low-energy light waves, but you see entirely different structures than you would see in the um, photograph taken with an optical camera. So... Um, it just showed us new insights into the universe. Oh my gosh, that's so cool! <laughs> but by the way, having nothing at all to do with anything, uh, I was the nerdy kid in grade school who, when we had a raffle in class, everybody was like waiting and hoping that they would strike it lucky and get the Nerf gun, and I was the one who was like, "I really hope nobody takes the Comet cassette tapes that I really want." <laughs> and of course, it was still there. <laughs> I mean, but that was a concern that I had. I'm like, I'm not going to get the Comet tapes. No, brilliant. I got the comment. So. Brilliant, yeah. brilliant. So, uh, kind of going back to um, 
what you talked about previously, most most scientists at, at this point in time um, accept some sort of uh, you know theory like the Big Bang theory in terms of creation. Um, and uh, kind of along with that, when we spoke with Catherine Hayhoe uh, about a month ago or so, um, she kind of she was talking to us about an anthropologist that did a study on uh, the number of scientists who actually have some sort of life of faith. Oh, Elaine Eklund. Oh, who was it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, um, she mentioned that despite you know uh, popular belief, uh, a large majority of scientists do have some sort of uh, faith, which is uh, completely the opposite of of what we've thought for so long. So at this point, uh, could you maybe kind of talk about the Big Bang Theory? Because I know I know you mentioned it in one of your blogs, how it's not contrary to, it doesn't contradict the Bible, rather. Uh, but I wondered if you could expand on it a little bit and explain, how how is that possible? Yeah, everybody thinks it contradicts. Right. Well, so the Big Bang Theory refers to a scientific model, first of all. Um, so scientists would use that in the same way they might use words like photosynthesis or biochemistry or gravity. It's a a scientific model that describes how things work in the universe. Now, in a lot of everyday language, including in the faith context in which I grew up, Big Bang Theory was used to refer to an atheistic worldview that said Mm. uh, uh, the universe created itself, it just came into being, and there is no God. It was something that was... Uh, the Big Bang Theory ruled out God, and that's attributing all sorts of things to a scientific theory when science science is just not capable of addressing those kinds of questions. Um, Right. So uh, one thing that I often repeat in my talks and in conversations is that a scientific explanation does not replace God. So we have a scientific explanation for lots of things, like for the orbit of planets around the sun. We can map that out in incredible detail. We understand exactly how the gravity works. We can um, predict it. We can measure it. But as Christians, we still believe that God governs the orbits of the planets. We don't usually see those as uh, contradictory statements. We see them as two different kinds of explanation for the same thing that are both true. And I would see the Big Bang in the same way. So uh, on a scientific level, the Big Bang is describing how uh, the universe developed from just after the first instant um, to the present day, how it expanded over time, how it started in a very hot and dense environment, and then that gradually uh, cooled as it expanded and stars formed and then galaxies formed and so forth. And that's a whole scientific description. But then if I step back as a Christian, I can look at that and say, oh, well, that gives me a a description of what God was doing. God was governing this whole process, and I can understand it on a scientific level, and I can also praise God for it and marvel at His uh, sovereignty and His plan and intention when I look at it through the eyes of Christian faith. Hmm. That's good. Um, Man, that is so good. So, so along with that, uh, do you think, do you see this, this kind of, uh, I don't know. We wouldn't even, I, I would say Adam and I wouldn't even necessarily call it this uh, a disagreement um, because I, I think we would say, if, if pressed, that the two kind of inform one another. They answer two entirely different questions. But do you see this as a time issue? Uh, kind of like when Galileo first came out and said, look, you know, the, the Earth is not the center of the universe. Hmm. And eventually over time, at first he was obviously ostracized, but eventually over time, People kind of came around, you know, especially <laughs> through the advent of technology. Like, look, we can show you now. No, you know? thanks to the church. <laughs> yeah. 
So, yeah. so do you see this this kind of this kind of weird fight uh, as something that you know over time? Do you think people will kind of warm to? Is it dissipating? Is the conflict dissipating? Oh, that's a really interesting question. So, in some ways, yes; in some ways, no. Um, so, yes, you're right. In the Galileo uh, era, Galileo with his the first one to really point the telescope at the heavens and see the implications of it, he discovered this evidence that the Earth is moving through space and it's going around the sun. And that was contrary to what people thought and what people thought the Bible was teaching. And so there was a lot of discussion over it. Of course, it was amplified by a whole lot of politics, um, church disputes, annoying personalities, all sorts of things came into play. It wasn't just the arguments. By the way, today... Um, the Catholic Church is a major sponsor of astronomical research. They fund the Vatican Observatory. Yes. and uh, so, yeah. so, yes, we came a, a long, long way on that issue. Uh, now we have issues of the Big Bang for the, the age of the Earth and the universe. But actually, it goes back to uh, the 1600s when there were uh, the first geologists in the 1600s and 1700s. They were Christians who went out looking for evidence of uh, a young earth and of a global flood. And they looked and looked, and the more they studied the rocks, the more convinced they became, no, actually, these are very long, very gradual processes that we're seeing. And and they uh, came to change their view of that as well and came to a different understanding of the biblical passages. So in both of those cases, um, the Church, um, for the large part, revised how they understood Scripture. Now, I don't want people to think, though, that, well, you know, we just make a scientific discovery and now we change our minds about the Bible, because I don't think that's really what's going on. I think what's going on is that as we look at Scripture, in every era, we bring our cultural biases to it, and we bring our presumptions and assumptions. And sometimes we need our blinders removed, and um, when we consider—so yeah. when we consider— things in the natural world, that's also God's revelation to us, and it's a way of helping us correct some errors we have in how we are seeing the Bible. And we, and it's not just um, the physical sciences uh, are a science, it's also, um, say, modern economics has helped us understand, you know, some parts of the Bible as well. Uh, the Bible is pretty firmly firm in saying you shouldn't lend to others and collect interest. But what do we do in our Modern Western culture, we're doing that all the time, but we have a different mm. way of understanding that now because we've seen different ways of how economics works. So the, uh, there's, God uses a lot of his general revelation through human culture and through the natural world to help us understand um, Scripture better and get at a, a deeper understanding of it. So I see those things from outside the Bible as prompting us to look at the Bible more closely. But I think it's only good biblical scholarship that is internal to the Bible and internal to Christian theology that's going to help us know what the new, good, better interpretation is. I don't think science can really tell us that. So that's how I see the interplay between those. I'm not yeah, sure if I answered was, the question you asked. So. Oh, no, that was, no, that that was, was a, great. That was a great, that was a brilliant answer. Okay. That was a really, really, really great answer. Thank you very much. Um, I'm, I'm curious. I'd love to just get your take. Uh, we, we spend a lot of our time talking to philosophers and theologians, and I've always been more of a theology nerd, and John's been a little bit more of a science nerd, even though we both kind of overlap a little bit. But from more of a, like a, I'd love to get 
ask you a theological question and, and hear the more, your more science-minded answer. Why do you think that this divide kind of started, and when do you think it kind of started to become a problem? Like, why, why is this such a hot topic? I mean, if you, if you think about hot topics in Christianity, you really, there aren't, there aren't many. I mean, it's uh, issues of sexuality, issues of heaven and hell, and issues of the age of the earth. I mean, it really, <laughs> there's only a few taboos. It, they, not, not much has changed. So what, what, when did this, in your opinion, become such a problem? Oh, you know, that is really interesting. If you think back, it used to be baptism was a huge issue. People went, <laughs> and, and, and that's more essential to the core of our theology, I, I think. Um, there were wars fought over it, people killed at the stake over it. My own Anabaptist ancestors, you know, churches splitting over whether you're going to sprinkle or dunk people. And I mean, I'm not mm-hmm. even getting into adult versus infant baptism. Yeah. And, and when do we talk about that now? Um, I guess that issue and gives me some hope for the future that the church could get to a place where maybe some of the things that are so burning today could become issues where the church can live with multiple perspectives and um, and not see that as uh, dividing us or as um, mm. you know central to the gospel. Because I think the gospel mm. is bigger than all of the issues that you mentioned there. Um, oh. So, uh, how did this one get to be a problem? Hmm. Well, uh, I think it's... Just in your opinion. Yeah, yeah. you know, just, it, it's, it's been, the, this, as all these scientific discoveries come in, it's also at the same time that we have the Enlightenment and then postmodernism. Um, there's all sorts of inter- interesting interactions that the historians of science and the, the uh, cultural historians will point out. Um, and sometimes it's just a few loud voices that give us a distorted impression of what's going on. So you have in the late 1800s, um, uh, these books on the warfare between science and Christianity that actually included Mm. a a lot of outright falsehoods about what had actually happened in the Galileo era and later, but it left this amazing Uh. impression that everybody just latched onto like, oh, yep, science and faith, they're at war, they can't go together. But other voices in the late 1800s, like B.B. Uh, Warfield, you know, some of the great faith leaders there, they took yeah. a serious look at um, the new science of evolution. Um, Darwin's theory was 1859, and the, in the decades follow, following that, a lot of uh, Christian leaders looked at that and said, yeah, you know, there's something to that, and we should be considering this as Christians. We can fit this with our faith. So then it was the fundamentalists in like the 19... 19- tens uh, and twenties in there. Yeah. Um, even they, in a lot of the those writings in the, the that that series of books, the fundamentals, um, mm-hmm. there were people who were open to an old earth, even open to some evolutionary processes. So this impression we have today that Christians, uh, that faithful Christians going back thousands of years, always believed that the earth was literally six thousand years old. That's not actually the case. Um, some of our great leaders of faith um, did not think that. Even leaders in the um, 20th century, C.S. Lewis and Billy Graham, many of them were certainly open to evolution even, and, and an old universe, certainly. So Absolutely. Yeah. So that's, no, that's a, some of how I see that changing over time. Um, but yet, you know, if I look back in the last 10 or 20 years, 
what I see is uh, voices just getting more polarized, I think, on how strongly yeah. people uh, feel about their points of view. So, yeah, that's I, a few things. I agree. I agree. That, that's, a, that's great. Thank you for that commentary. So, um, you ready to go a, a little science-y here? <laughs> uh, I'm always ready for science. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, all right. So, I think, I, I personally feel like right now, um, in this current time period, is such a cool time uh, for science. Uh, whether, uh, whether we're talking about recent scientific discoveries or just kind of this renewed interest in the subject in general with uh, shows like the, with uh, Cosmos, with Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, that I thought was exceptionally well done, um, you know, to uh, the discovery of gravity waves, uh, dark matter, dark energy, just some really interesting things happening in, in the world of science right now. Um, maybe you could kind of go into, uh, well, and actually, before I forget, <laughs> multiverse theories, which absolutely Ooh, just made my head explode yes. the first time I heard uh, about that. Um, I think anybody, I think we've mentioned this before, anybody who's seen the first episode of the new Cosmos where they kind of go into multiverse theory or theories, um, I think got very, very afraid and then uh, and, and felt very small all, all at the same time. So, I just went catatonic. Yeah. So uh, just out of curiosity, could you know, if you could maybe talk a little bit about um, what is dark energy and dark matter? Because to, to the extent of my layman's knowledge of uh, of this kind of subject, it comprises about ninety-five percent of the universe, and we have no idea what it is. Well, that's that's correct. <laughs> so, uh, yes, this is one of the exciting discoveries um, that I've in my own field that I've been able to watch close up over the last twenty years. Oh. So, twenty years ago, I was a graduate student, and the debate over the expansion rate of the universe was, um, uh, it, and the age of the universe was going strong. So there were, uh, among professional astronomers, competing camps of um, values that differed by like a factor of two. So some people thought the universe was in a, um, like 10 billion years old. Others thought maybe 20 billion. A few people argued for values in between, but people were separating out into different camps and then uh, some of the new telescopes came online. We've got new measurements uh, that nailed down some of the um, properties of the universe very precisely. The expansion rate, the amount of matter in the universe, and then uh, how that expansion rate is changing over time. And those numbers um, give us a much more precise measure of the age of the universe. And we now know it is 13.8 billion years old, plus or minus point. Oh, five, I think it is. Oh, I should have looked that number up. Um, it, Holy it, cow. <laughs> yes. We know it incredibly precisely. Um, that is amazing. To less than 1% uncertainty, when it used to be a factor of two that we were debating. And I've been able to see that progression and to see the consensus build among the astronomical community as we saw, oh, you know, that theory that people used to argue for, that doesn't work, that one doesn't work. But hey, this one that seemed so wacko, that actually is working and more and more evidence for it. So. Uh, wow! Yeah, it's it's been an exciting time. Now you asked a little more detail about dark matter and dark energy. So, dark matter is the stuff in the universe that has mass but does not emit light, and it doesn't block light. It just doesn't interact with light at all. Now, 
we now know how much matter there is in the universe. We also know pretty well how much matter there is of the ordinary kind of matter. So ordinary matter is the stuff you know from the periodic table that you saw in your chemistry classroom, the hydrogen and helium, the carbon and nitrogen and oxygen, all the stuff in our bodies, all the stuff in the planet Earth. This is ordinary matter. That makes up 4% of the universe. Then there's another, (laughs) yeah, only 4%. And then there's another 26 or so, 22%, something in there. Oh, guys, I'm sorry, I don't have the precise numbers in front of me, but it's uh, right, right, right in there. Ballparks, ballparks, good. Ballpark, ballpark ballpark's figures. Good. I could get you the full technical references with uncertainty values if you would like. Anyway, it's yeah. uh, the uh, dark. So we know that there's a portion of this matter that's not the ordinary kind. It's some other weird kind of matter, and we're narrowing in on what it must be. Um, it's likely some kind of strange elementary particle left over from the Big Bang. Um, there's been a lot of experiments done to rule out various possibilities of what it could be to understand its properties better. And so we're, we're narrowing in on what dark matter could be. I'm hoping in my lifetime that we will be able to say, ah, this is what dark matter is. That would be very cool. Sub, sub nerd question here. Uh, how yes. do you observe it? How do you observe it to figure out what it is if it doesn't interact with light? Oh, oh, A plus question. Yes. Um, well, that, that's uh, the challenge. So what you can observe is how it affects other things. So one place you can see the dark matter is in our own galaxy. You can see the stars orbiting around the center of the galaxy. So by their orbit, you know how much mass must be there that's keeping them in orbit. But wow. you, can also, you can also look at what you see there. You can you know count the stars, look at how much gas there is. You add up how much mass is in that stuff, and you go... That's not enough. I see these stars, they're going in orbit, but they seem to be held there by something other than the stuff that we can see. And by that, we measure how much of the dark matter there must be. And you can wow. see it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the ways that we know. And there's actually um, multiple other ways. That's another neat thing about um, dark matter is we have a, a couple of different ways of measuring where it is and how clumpy it is and things like that. And that... Um, so we know it's there and we, we're, we're, we might be able to figure out what it is now, dark oh energy. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Dark energy is, well, that we discovered more recently and it's kind of a catchphrase that got used. There used to be a lot of different possible terms for it. And then we kind of settled on dark energy is the term for whatever it is that's causing the universe to speed up in its expansion. Mm. So it was in the late 90s that we got confirmation that the universe is accelerating. Its expansion is speeding up over time. And that's when all the astronomers went, what? Really? No. (laughs) Because everybody thought, well, eh, we know there's matter in the universe that's attracting everything gravitationally. It should be slowing down. And here... They measured that it was speeding up. And I remember going to lectures where the data were presented in a compelling way. And uh, a lot of the senior astronomers in the audience were raising their hand and asking very probing questions about this or that possible observational error, instrumental problem. Are you sure it's not this? Are you sure it's not that? Because this was really a surprise. But then, um, you know, the, the data was convincing and 
Um, multiple groups discovered it. So we know the universe is accelerating in its expansion. Since then, we've uh, learned much more in detail how that acceleration is working. So we know there's this dark energy. We know a little bit about its properties, uh, but there's still a lot of unanswered questions around it. So if ordinary matter is about 4% and dark matter is around 25-ish percent, the rest of the stuff in the universe is dark energy, but we don't know really what it is. Mm. Oh, man. Want to hear, hear how I think about this in my faith? Yes, yes. of course we <laughs> want to hear that. you do. <laughs> so I think this is just, this is one of the really cool things about being a scientist and informs how I think about God. I was giving a talk on this kind of stuff uh, a couple years ago at a church, and here comes um, this high school student and her dad, and they came up to me and they said, isn't it cool how the more you learn in science, the more there is to discover. And they were talking about how when you're a little kid, you look up at the, at the moon and go, wow, look at that. And in elementary school, you can learn your constellations. And you get to college and you start learning how stars have lifetimes and change over their lives and the, how, what its uh, properties of how plants form and things like that. And then you get to research astronomers and they're like, yeah, yeah, I understand all that. But what is this dark energy stuff? And there's always more to learn. It's not like the universe is just this wallpaper up there and you, you poke at it and that's all it is. It's, it's incredibly rich. There's always more to discover. And that stretches my curiosity and my wonder and my humility because the way we think it is is sometimes how it isn't. And all of those are like encountering God. There's always more to mm. discover about God. The, the unending depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God I've I've barely scratched the surface. I'm like, you know, a kindergartner and how I understand all there is to know about God. And there's always more to learn. Um, the, the mystics of, of, of the early Christian church spent their whole lives pondering God, and still there is more to learn and more to grow. And science reminds me of that. Oh, wow. Man. I could I could listen to you talk about this all day. I think you just <laughs> dropped the mic. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and led us into our next question, which is perfect. Um, I, I I can honestly say within my lifetime, I I re- can recall as a child uh, the fact that black holes were still kind of a theory at that point. They hadn't been proven. It was kind of uh, these advanced uh, mathematical equations that are well beyond my capacity of understanding um, that. They were they're trying to trying to prove that these black holes existed at the center of galaxies, but didn't have the technology at that at that point in time. And then, as the years went on, you know they uh, you know we created the Hubble Space Telescope and the Kepler and all these really high power telescopes, and and now we're able to confirm you know that theory that there are in fact you know black holes, whether they're active or inactive. And um, I just remember thinking that was such a neat thing to see the progression of you know theory to, to fact now that they've been able to prove it as as technology has advanced. Um, and then I see you know multiverse theories uh, ha- have obviously kind of taken off now, uh, where they one of the theories and and I couldn't honestly tell you which one, but uh, <laughs> one of them uh, basically suggests that there may be 
other universes within these black holes, if I if I heard this correctly. And I think to myself, well, of course, of course there would be. Yeah. Uh, this divine creator, of course he would continue to create uh, infinitely. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know how much you get into multiverse theories, but uh, is there a particular one that that uh, you really kind of latch onto, and is there one that maybe you could kind of uh, break down in uh, to childlike minds such as ours? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you, you've got a handle on the basics here already. For for one thing, oh, thank you. <laughs> yes, there. Um, you, you're already realizing there are multiple theories of the multiverse. It's it's actually been pretty interesting how some from some very different. Um, areas of astronomy and physics and mathematics that people have come up with this idea that there would be other other universes. And these different theories don't always fit together very well, although people try to do that too. The one that I... How to say this? Um, first of all, I, I love it that you as um, pastors and faith leaders are thinking about the multiverse because this is something... We don't have proof of it yet. We don't have... Um, uh, you know, a great uh, a test that can say, yes, it definitely is. But it's an idea that people are talking about in the scientific community. And I think it's great when the church can be in tune with that and not be behind the, the game and the conversation, but be thinking ahead to what implications there might be down the road um, if, these, uh, if one of these theories of the multiverse is confirmed. And, um, and, you know, so we're thinking ahead about the implications. Mm. So uh, the one that I I find a most uh, interesting, I will say, I guess, is um, the one that's based on the inflationary theory of the early universe. So I mentioned earlier that the universe is expanding and ex- and is accelerating it in its expansion. But the inflationary theory of the early universe refers to a moment in just in the very tiniest first fraction of a second in which the universe was expanded by an incredible amount for just a tiny fraction of a second. And it sounds wacko. Why, what would cause the universe to just rapidly expand like that? And why would it stop? And (laughs) what's going on? And why would you even think that? But it was, that theory was proposed to actually answer some of the questions that um, the evidence in the universe raises about why things look the way they do, why the sky looks, um, so similar in every direction, for instance. And the inflationary theory of the early universe was proposed to explain those. But people weren't sure how seriously to take this until they said, okay, yeah, great, you explained some existing data. But the inflationary theory also predicted other kinds of observations, especially about the microwave background radiation. So the background radiation of uh, the universe, the cosmic background, is this heat radiation left over from the early stages of the universe. It's coming at us from all directions. It's in the microwave part of the spectrum, which is light um, with wavelengths a little bit shorter than radio waves. Um, And in that part of the spectrum, when you point a telescope at at the sky, you see almost identical emission all the way around, but with these very faint little ripples in it. And the structure of those faint ripples has been one of the most exciting discoveries in cosmology in the last 20 years. Um, We've had a succession of instruments that have given measurements of those at ever greater precision. And the structure of those ripples turns out to exactly match the predictions of the inflationary theory of the early universe. It's confirmed those predictions. 
So what? Yes. So it turns out this really <laughs> bizarre idea turns out to be a good match. Now here's where it gets even more strange, though. The inflationary theory. Most versions of the inflationary theory predict that there would also be other universes. That not just our universe had this very rapid inflation in the first instant, but that other bubbles would have expanded rapidly as well. So there would be other universes and that they would have somewhat different physical properties than our universe. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what is really hard to get our heads around. And I have heard, just in a purely scientific context, debates about, is this science or not? And and it wasn't even people bringing um, religious worldviews into the question. It was like, is it science if we can't test this prediction? So inflation is making some predictions that have been confirmed, and it makes this other prediction of a multiverse, but we're talking about other universes. That's beyond what we can measure because we can only see things in our universe. So mm. what does it mean to study another universe? Like, it can predict they're there, but if you can't confirm that prediction, is that even science? Some people say, well, yeah, it's a prediction. Other people say, well, no. Um, so, so that's an active debate in the scientific community from what I'm seeing. Wow. That is, I hope our listeners just pause at this point so they're safe in their cars and they're not <laughs> dropping their exercise equipment or whatever, whatever it is they're doing. <laughs> That was that's some good juice right there, man. Yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you didn't enjoy that, there's there's no hope for you. <laughs> oh my gosh! All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna do my best to to try to formulate a question here that ties back a couple of the things that you've said into a curiosity that I have. So early on when we were talking here, um, you had mentioned this um, this thing that discovery does that it continues to break things open and it continues. So you know we thought you know we thought we understood this about scripture, but then you know as a lot of people, Francis Schaeffer is one of my heroes and a lot of others, your, your work at BioLogos, things like that. As we discover more about the natural world that we believe God created, that turns us back to scripture to say, okay, let's open that up and see what other interpretations there could be. So there is this initial, I think, arrogance that we all have as human beings. Uh, you know, C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery and you know, there's just always been this this air of arrogance to, uh, you know, science does it, faith does it, we all do it. We're like, okay, this is it. This is this is what it is, and now we're gonna we're gonna freeze this and build on it and institutionalize it. And there's this sort of arrogance, and the you know, the arrogance in science is because we know this, then these things about faith can't be true. But then the arrogance in in you know, biblical literalists or even just other people of faith that say, well, because I have this interpretation of scripture then none of that stuff in science can be true. And I want to tie that back to what you said about mystery and then ask you a question, that there are all these things, dark matter, dark energy, multiverses, all these discoveries that are continuing to break everything open. And there's a quote in Stephen Hawking's Brief History of Time that said, toward the end, he said, in Newton's time, it was possible for an educated person to have a grasp of the whole of human knowledge, at least in outline form. But since then the pace of the development of science has made this impossible. Sorry, all that to say, here's my question. In this time of rapid discovery that leads to more and more and more and exponentially more questions, do you think it's time that we all develop 
some humility. And I wonder if you could give us some thoughts on that, because I think humility and the, and, and the need for mystery, which you'd reference the mystics, might be the key to all of us just chilling out a little bit and allowing things to happen. What are your thoughts on that? I know that was a long question. No, you're, you're bringing to love together a lot of great ideas. So I, Christ calls us to humility. So as people mm. of faith who follow Jesus Christ is one of the fundamental things that he calls us to. If we are to be like Christ, we must be like the one who is God, who set aside all of his power in governing this vast universe or multiverse and became a human infant, um, nearly powerless, and set that all aside for our sakes. And we have to be willing to be incarnate to others, to set aside our, our, the arrogance that you mentioned, um, our, mm. our power, and be willing to listen, to learn, to walk in another's shoes. And to be curious. Um, mm. So one way we're doing that at Biologos is we have uh, been deliberately in dialogue with Christians who hold other, hold other views on science. So we're actually uh, working on a book um, that's growing out of uh, several conversations we've had with the group Reasons to Believe. Um, this is a Christian organization led by Hugh Ross. Um, that it, they accept the great age of the universe, but they differ with biologists in our view of uh, evolution. So reasons mm. to believe would um, think there are serious problems with um, biological evolution. At Biologos, we see that there's robust evidence for the common ancestry of all life, and we believe evolution, we see evolution as a process that God used to create life, that God mm. crafted and designed the evolutionary process with intention um, to bring about the complex life that we see today. Hmm. So, but in this dialogue, so here we had it coming at it with different views and quite strongly held views. And yes. yet for, uh, for both organizations and the leadership and individuals in both organizations, we valued Christian unity more that we as Christians have to be able to stand side by side and be able to talk about these things because we are fellow mm. believers, we are all need to be modeling the humility of Christ. And Hugh Ross and the other leaders at Reasons to Believe, I respect their humility and their Christian faith so much. Even while we disagree about um, evolution and about how to interpret the Bible, but they, these are wonderful leaders of faith. And so Christian unity does not mean uniformity. We don't all have to think exactly Whoa. the same thing. Yeah, isn't that... <laughs> Christian That's unity. a good quote. Christian unity does not mean uniformity. It does mean that we're united in bonds of fellowship as, as fellow family of, of God, fellow children of God. It means that we share the core of our faith, that we follow Jesus Christ, that we see him as our only hope, our only Lord and Savior, um, the only one that can save us from our sins and bring us into new life. That's the core. We have to hold firm to that. I was just talking with a pastor yesterday of a church. I loved how he said it. He said at their church, they nurture curiosity about what we don't know while standing firm in what we do know. They nurture, curi nurture curiosity about what we don't know while standing firm in what we do know. And hmm. that curiosity, curiosity is fundamentally humility. You come at it like 
teach me. I want to learn. I don't know yet. What can I learn? And there's a joy in it, in that humble curiosity. And um, I think that's a great thing we can um, aspire to ourselves and nurture in each other and build communities where we can be humble and curious about the world around us, about the natural world, about people who hold other perspectives. Well, let's learn what that is. It's been fascinating for us to learn more about the perspective of this other organization, Reasons to Believe, to come to understand it better, to realize we had misconceptions. We didn't fully understand. We, you know, we thought they had this view, and it turns out we were wrong. Oh, okay, so now we understand their view better. To be able to describe somebody else's position that you disagree with in a way that they would consider to be accurate, that is a spiritual discipline that requires a lot of humility. Um, a respect for the other position? Can you at least articulate what they believe and why they believe it, even if you disagree? And doing that, you come to see greater areas of agreement. You don't have to change your view, though, to have a better conversation in the church. And uh. so we need these better conversations. Um, the young people need it. They need to hear leaders being willing to say, I don't know, and tell me more, and let's learn and work mm. on this together. One of the things our young people need to see us modeling that. I'm sorry, I'm going on here a long time, but I feel so passionately no, this about this family of issues. <laughs> I love it. You go, you go, girl. <laughs> so, um, it, I think you're probably familiar with some of the research from the Barna Group that was in the book "You Lost Me." How um, so many of the yeah. young, so many of the young people who are leaving the church, they um, uh, at least a third of them would say the reason was that the church wasn't open to their deepest questions. And when I talk to parents and pastors about science, a lot of them feel like, oh, okay, well, you know, I didn't do very well in science in school. I'm not sure what to say. I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing. I just don't know this stuff. And I'm like, that's okay. You don't have to know the science to have a great question with a teenager, a great conversation with a teenager. You can say to them, well, let's read about it together. Let's talk about it. Mm. And you can model for them what it means to be a humble, curious Christian who wants to learn about it and point them to resources and um, have that conversation. And that's what will hold um, a young person in the faith as they say, like, wow, the church does want to talk about these questions. This is a place where I can wrestle with these issues and still um, have my faith intact at the end of the day. And have so my faith good. deeper at the end of the day. Okay, and let me just make one more point here. The the people sure. <laughs> people we see coming to Biologos who are engaging these questions, they actually um, come through to the other side having their faith strengthened. And this was true in my own life. Having a deeper understanding of the Bible, having a deeper encounter with God, of having a greater desire to learn about God's world. And they... they come through that with a richer understanding of how to worship God with their mind as well as their heart, of bringing together their mm. workday science Monday through Friday with their Sunday worship in, in a holistic way that where they can now see themselves as whole persons who are following God and worshiping Jesus Christ. These are the things that can come out of investigating these scientific questions. So mm. it... Um, it doesn't lead you away from faith. It can lead you to a deeper faith. That is awesome. Oh, man. Uh, we want to be, uh, you know, uh, obviously uh, 
uh, conscious of your uh, of your time here, and um, I'll be honest, I have we have tons more questions, so we would love to have you back in the future if you're if you're interested. I think I think we just uh, touched the tip of the iceberg on this one. Oh yeah, we just tip, dipped our little pinky toe in here. <laughs> I would well, love to come back sometime. Oh, that'd be great. Um, before we let you go, though, what is the best place that uh, people can go to get a hold of your book and some of the other resources uh, that that you've put out there? Oh, sure. So um, our website is biologos.org, B-I-O-L-O-G-O-S.org. And on our website, you can find um, our blog. So we have several people who blog on our site, and you can uh, read their thoughts and reflections. We have, uh, we've had over 300 people write on the Biologos site, from um, uh, professional scientists at universities to leading theologians and pastors to um, students to lay people who are just um, thinking through these questions. So um, check out our blog. We also have an online forum where people can come and join the conversation. You can come there and ask your questions, and other people on, on the forum will um, share their insights and wisdom, and um, it's a great place to uh, engage further. There's also a recommended books page where you can see information about books by um, leaders in our community, and including um, the book that I wrote which with my husband, Lauren Harsma. It's called Origins, and that book... Um, is used by a lot of uh, churches, small groups, um, Christian high schools, some Christian college classrooms for uh, helping people think through different views that Christians have on issues of creation, design, evolution, human origins. And so it makes for a great discussion book. We also have several other books on our site. Our newest book is How I Changed My Mind About Evolution, and it's evangelicals reflecting on science and faith. So there's um, science leaders there, but also faith leaders. N.T. Wright is in the book. Jamie Smith is in the book. Um, John Ortberg. And all of them are, are writing about their encounter with uh, faith and science. Oh, and of course, our founder of Biologos, Francis Collins, is in that book. Francis Collins is one of the world's leading biologists. He's uh, led the Human Genome Project, and he now directs the National Institutes of Health. And he has, his best-selling book has now been out for 10 years it's called The Language of God, A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief. And in that book, he gives his testimony and uh, uh, talks about evolution. It's a, a wonderful book, especially for um, uh, scientists uh, um, and for people who didn't necessarily grow up in the faith because uh, Francis Collins didn't grow up in the faith either. And he gives his faith journey of how he uh, came to know Jesus as his Savior. So those are a few of our resources. Uh, we also have events around the country. We have a new speakers bureau. If you would like to have a Biologo speaker come to your event, just come to our website and you can fill out a form to request a speaker and see events that are happening all around the country. Man, thank you so much for this. This is just this has been a real treat for us. We're uh, we're nerding out all over the place over here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wonderful! And um, I would love to talk more and hear more of your questions. So. Uh, Oh, that would be wonderful. (laughs) We'll definitely make that happen. Thank you so much. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being on the show. And we're excited to send tons and tons of people over to BioLogos. And hopefully they'll they'll get edified just as you said they would. And we know they will. Wonderful. Good. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a great time. Thank you so much, Deb. We had a blast and we'll be talking to you again soon. Okay, great. All right. Take care. (laughs) Okay. Bye.
Oh boy. <laughs> Goodness me. So I finally I finally got to talk about dark matter and dark energy on a podcast and it and Dude, it your sense. nerd glow right now. <laughs> well, in the middle of it, I had to restrain myself because she was like, Yeah, I don't I don't have the percentages right off the top of my head. And I was I was gonna be like, uh twenty six to twenty seven percent, depending on which study you look at. Yeah. For for, <laughs> for dark matter. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna I'm, do that. I'm glad you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> like because she's way smarter than I am, and I'm not about to sit here and be like, well, I know, percentages. Yeah. <laughs> I've got you. I'm waiting to trip you up. Yeah. But I, I just thought her answers, just in the way that she views science and, and how, it, how it absolutely does not uh, contradict faith, but rather informs it, mm. I thought was just really cool. When she was talking about when we got into uh, Big Bang Theory and, and um, you know, the, the formation of the universe and stuff like that, and just just kind of her mindset, and she's like, "Well, of course, God, God would have to do it some way, right? So, right, why not the Big Bang? Yeah, like who cares? That's it, just a word, anyway. Yeah, it's just a theory. And you know, I loved when you were getting her all up into the multiverse, like <laughs> theories, man. Yeah, dude, watching you do this interview may have been my favorite part of the entire interview. <laughs> I wish you guys could have all seen John just grinning ear to ear, like up like and the down on my Joker. chair. <laughs> <laughs> and then you know what else I love about her is like the passion that comes through the same same with pretty much everybody we've interviewed but like you know it, it's almost like the scientists you know uh Catherine Hayhoe and Deb and uh, it, it's amazing that this passion yeah for discovery fuels their their theological passion and the two just dance they they don't care which one leads if you know yeah. science contradicts something that they had seen or heard but theologically they go back and they open that up and go well what, what else could this be because yeah you know science is pretty dead on here so they let themselves remain open and they let science and faith become these dance partners Absolutely. instead of these sparring partners and i just the passion and the excitement and the enthusiasm is so infectious yeah and it's and it's absolutely just kind of like um kind of like you're sitting at your dining room table and and, and doing a puzzle and that satisfaction you get from finding the right piece that fits, you know what I mean? And You're like, like oh, ah! yes, it, you know, it just fits so perfectly. And and for me, that was always philosophy in college. I was always told, you know, by the by my Christian conservative friends, like, oh no, man, philosophy is like witchcraft. You know, I want to punch like, them all in the face right no, now. No, philosophy <laughs> gives us the language. You know, oh dude. And I feel the same way about science. Science just gives us kind of, and and we're gonna talk to a guest here. Um, we have an interview coming up. That I think you guys really like. Um, I love that distinction you just made, though. That so that philosophy gives us the language. Yes, that's so spot on, man. Like, Thanks. <laughs> the cool part about doing this whole podcast is like getting to talk to all these people from all these different fields and really kind of stepping back and getting to talk to you about it and realizing like the role that all these things have to play in this big dance of life. And philosophy is the language. I mean, I, I think of this quote from Bert, Bertrand Russell once said that something like. Philosophy helps us live um, in uncertainty without being paralyzed yes. by uncertainty. Yeah, because it gives us language with which to, you know, deal with the fact that we know we don't know. Yeah, and oh, a lot of that came through in Dr. Harsma. Oh, and, and everything that she was talking about. Spot on, man. Yeah, I think I think uh, science does much the same thing. Where it you you get, and this is what I was uh, I think kind of getting at with this guest that we can't talk about yet but <laughs> this really great uh guest that we have coming up that that we'll we'll uh drop more information on later but um 
and talking about just the essence of God and how you can never truly know something that exists outside of, of time and space and right. something that was beyond creation. Right. Um, you can only get a, an idea, you know, God, God reveals himself in little instances mm. uh, throughout, you know, throughout time and space. So I, I think, um, I think it all fits together so beautifully. So good. I can't wait for you guys to hear that one too, but. So good. And the, uh, <laughs> the music on this one is, uh, is special. It's actually coming from um, someone who's a listener and someone who has uh, actually had their music featured in BioLogos in the past. He's yeah. uh, become a friend of ours. His name's Clay. I think it's Kirkenbauer. I, I'm never glad actually, you attempted that. Clay, I've never actually Sorry, heard you buddy. say your last name. And we have spoke. So uh, yeah. if that's wrong, you can just slap me. Everybody mispronounces my name as well. So we're brothers <laughs> from another mother in that in that vein. But uh, the music in this uh, whole episode is from Clay. And mm. he's a musician. Uh, used to be, I think he used to be a worship pastor and is continuing to make this beautiful music. And um, the song we're going to close with here is a song uh, inspired by his own deconstruction in realizing that you know he can... Um, essentially fit theology and science into a dance that work together. And that realization made him realize that um, to someone who was raised kind of more fundamentalist and was told that you can't believe things like billions of years and you can't believe things like the Big Bang, he realized that uh, a cool way of thinking about it is it's not just 14 you know, billion years of cold, dead space, but you know, if, if God is an agent, if, you know, there is a love, an active relational love at the center of all this, then this is 15, 14 billion years of love. Yeah. And that's what the song's about. So it's, it's pretty cool. So enjoy it. Thank you, Clay, for letting us use uh, the music. And what else we got? Yeah. Just uh, as always, if you like the music, please like go out and check it out. Um, most of our musicians, just like Clay's uh, music is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple music. So go check it out. And, uh, like I said, if you like it, you know, bug him on social media. Tell him we sent you. Absolutely. And all that will be in the show notes. Cool, man. That was awesome. Yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed it. Your nerd glow. It's <laughs> so great. I love it. Can't help it. <laughs> all right. Well, we love you guys. Thanks for letting us do what we do and joining us in this conversation. Keep floating guests our way. We've been getting lots of great ideas from all of you guys. So please keep sending us ideas for musicians, ideas for guests, ideas for ideas. Ideas yeah. about ideas, <laughs> just ideas. Just keep them, keep them coming. We're having a blast doing this, and we love connecting with you all. Yeah, and other than that, you guys have no idea. September is going to be a really cool month for, for everybody. All, so we got stuff of good in, stuff. We got stuff in the pocket. It's like it's almost like we're on a mission from God or something. Feels that way. <laughs> <laughs> Cue up the Blues Brothers soundtrack right now. All right, we love you guys. And for now, we are your hosts. I am Adam Narlock. And I'm John Williamson. Keep deconstructing, everybody. Like an explosion of the finest kind. All matter, energy, space, and time. And the universe was born. of heaven that were set in place set to govern just our finite space for humanity's sake lights
Too.